Well, we've had uh, a very clear delivering of the gospel through baptism. We've had another clear delivering of the gospel through music, and that's how it should be. That's how it should be. Uh, even before um, the message, the primary message delivered, we should already have the message. And it's a very clear one that hopefully will lead us to a response. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be there in just a minute, and we'll get our thoughts kind of going with that passage, but then we're going to go in another place as well, so be ready to, to move on from, from there, just as a heads up. I grew, I grew up in a rural part of the state, about an hour north of Tuscaloosa, just outside a little town called Fayette. We lived down this gravel road on the banks of the Luxpalala River, and it was a great place to live and to play. One night, and I think I was 12 or 13, I probably would have been getting ready to turn 13. My best friend, who was also my cousin, came over to spend the night. It was a Friday night, and uh, sometime pretty late in the evening, my parents got a phone call that a family member had been taken to the hospital. So they had a choice, take the two kids with them, or he's getting ready to become a teenager, maybe he'll be okay at home with his sleepover buddy, who was about a year younger. So they left and they gave us one rule. We had one rule. About two-tenths of a mile up that gravel road was Alabama Highway 18. And across Alabama Highway 18 was an asphalt plant. Now, they used the gravel from the Luxpalala River to help make their asphalt. And behind that asphalt plant, they would dredge the river, and there would be these huge gravel piles that we loved to play on. They were huge, especially for cute little kids like us. And we liked nothing more than to run up the road, go across the highway, and play king of the hill on those gravel piles. We had one rule. Don't do that. My parents said we didn't really know what went on back there behind that asphalt plant, especially at, at night that men like to go back there and do bad things. It was dangerous for children, they said. That's all we needed to hear. As soon as they take off, so did we. Mind you, it's 9, 30, 10 o'clock, so it's, it's dark, although there was a good moon that night. And we sneak off across the highway to the gravel piles and start playing. We're having a great time. What, what do our parents know? Anyway, a lot, apparently. <clears throat> We've been there about 30 minutes when we hear this distinctive sound of an old pickup truck turn off Highway 18. We see these headlights coming toward the back of the asphalt plant. My goodness, uh, our parents were right. It got our attention big time. We were literally scared of what might be about to happen, and so we developed a plan. We positioned ourselves on the back side of the gravel pile that was closest to the river, and we, our plan was to shimmy down the back side of the gravel pile and to maneuver down the bank of the river to quietly get across the river, scurry up on the other side, and run home without being noticed. 
Now, the Lux Belisle is a tributary of the Tom Bigby, so it's not big. It's 20, 25 steps across at its widest. So it seemed like a doable plan for us. Uh, so we, we did exactly that. And once we got down to the riverbank, we put our shoes and our socks in our hand and started to make our way across the river very quietly and very slowly, making sure we didn't draw any attention to the man or the men that were in the truck. Now, I think I mentioned that this area of the river was dredged. So instead of having a nice gravel bottom, it had a silt bottom at best. And so I'm navigating as best I can, going very slowly. We're not making a sound. And I'm about five or six steps ahead of, of my cousin in the back. And all of a sudden, I hear a whisper. Lance! And I look back, and my cousin had become buried to his knees in the river bottom and couldn't move. Although at that point, the, the river was less than waist deep, all I could see of him was this position up. And I don't know if you are old enough to remember this uh, character that Tim Conway played in the, in the uh, 80s called Dorf. And he was basically a torso and a head. That's, I mean, that is literally what he looked like. I mean, he was down like that. And he was trying to rock back and forth to free himself up here. And all I could see was him doing that. And every time he would rock forward, his nose could touch the water. And it was a sight to behold. Now, mind you, there's some thread up there. I don't know what it is. But there's some thread up there, at least in our minds. But what I saw there was doggone funny. <laughs> Keep in mind, I'm 13 years old. So I, I let out a muffled snicker, and that only made things worse because it wasn't funny to my cousin. He intensified his effort to free himself, rocking back and forth more violently, and that only made it more funny to me. And I'm sure you know that the harder you try not to laugh the more you are going to laugh. And it was so funny. And I started to laugh to the point that my knees buckled and I fell back into the edge of the riverbank where there was still a bit of water. And there was a splash. At that point in time, a spotlight went across the, the sky and hit the back of the riverbank. It wasn't positioned to where it could hit us, but it hit the back of the riverbank. And I saw it, and my eyes got that big. My friend kept trying to free himself, and it wasn't funny anymore. It wasn't funny anymore. It got my attention. Now, in hindsight, probably a couple of buddies that were in the back, they were probably spotting deer is probably what they were doing. We didn't know that. We didn't know that, and they had probably perched themselves on the back there. And, but we were genuinely moved to action at that point in time. I quickly popped up and helped my friend get out of his predicament, and we scurried up the riverbank, fought through a bevy of briars, and set a land speed record back to the house with at least half the clothes that we started with. And why did I tell you that story? Because the spotlight did what it was supposed to do. It forced me into action. It got my attention big time. 
You know, in many ways, a spotlight has always been on the Christian, has always been on the Christian, and by extension, of course, the church, because that is the church. When the church was starting 2,000 years ago, people were wanting to know, who are these people? What are they all about? These people say they follow somebody that rose from the dead, taught some things that went against the prevailing thoughts of the day. What are they all about? And as a result, this group of people were watched closely, and there's been a spotlight that has been on the Christians since day one. And this is what they did with everyone looking. And if you would stand with me as we read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, I just pray that as we look at your word, Lord, I just pray that anything that is of you would take deep root in us and would move us to action. Lord, anything that is of me, I pray that it wouldn't be heard by anyone. I pray that it would go in one ear and out the other, and it would just be crushed and never thought of again. Say what you want to say. Move us the way you want to move us. Thank you for the, your word in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's keep this in mind as a sort of a starting place as we visit this morning, because we're going to hit different passage, uh, different passage to sort of draw a line, I hope, to us today. So to begin with, let's keep in mind what believers did just as soon as the Holy Spirit came upon them. Because you know not much has changed as far as the Christian being in the spotlight. But this is what I believe about the church today. The spotlight is as bright as it's ever been. And the question we have to wrestle with today is what is the spotlight revealing if you were in here as our service began and, and Ryan walked out getting ready to uh, baptize Stephen, whew, spotlight came up. Everybody's eyes went straight there. Spotlight has a way of doing that. I don't know if you've ever thought about you as a Christian kind of being just like that and being in the spotlight, but we are. Do we even live with the realization we have a spotlight on us? And if the spotlight is revealing something not consistent with how we've been instructed to live, how do we respond? So this is what the church did when the Holy Spirit came upon it. And I want you to think about that and get your minds going for a moment because we're going to fast forward from Pentecost. People have gone out. They have begun telling everybody that they can about Christ They've been sharing the gospel. They've been persecuted all along the way, but they're continuing to be consistent in their message. They're telling the story. And despite all of the persecution that is going on, the church is exploding. The church is exploding because people kept telling. They kept telling. They stayed consistent in their message. So the church has been established. They've gone out. 
church is growing rapidly, and Paul is now writing letters to some of these churches that have been planted because the spotlight is on them. And let's see what Paul wants to tell the church in Colossae. If you could turn now over to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Now that time has passed, now that there are churches all over the area now, Paul wants to remind the church at Colossae some things because, well, it's in the spotlight. And this is what Paul says in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that may, you may know how you ought to answer each person. In Colossians 4, just like many other places throughout Paul's letters, when Christ was on earth speaking, basically he is telling the church, the world's watching. The world's watching. He tells them to be wise. Watch what they say so that the gospel can be taken to the lost. And I believe people are continuing to watch. And in 2023, I believe that God has swung a door wide open. And he swung a big spotlight on us to get our attention. Are we doing what we are supposed to be doing? This, this is our spotlight moment for us here today. You know, as the world gets darker and appears to be closer and closer to becoming unhinged, People are going to explore a lot of things to, to look for truth. They're going to explore a lot of things. I think you see that happening right now. Many are at least going to take a moment and look at the church. And how is it responding? I wish that I had better news to deliver to you today, but there are a mix of numbers from our convention. Some go all the way to back to before COVID and some after. And this is, this is what it looks like. SBC churches lost about 460,000 in membership last year. Membership in the convention decreased by 287,659 back in 2019. So you can't really blame this on the pandemic, despite us planning 74 additional churches in the country. Attendance was pegged at 3.8 million last year. That's 2022. In 2019, it was 5.3 million. We baptized 180,000 in 2022, which is up from 2021. But in 2019, 2019 we baptized 236,000. Is there a reversal of that trend coming in the coming years? Here are the statistics about what the younger half of the country believes. If you're under 35, you are significantly less likely to believe in the existence of absolute moral truth, be deeply committed to practicing your faith, believe that God is the basis of all truth, view the purpose of life to be knowing, loving, and serving God, consider the Bible to be a reliable source of moral guidance, 
Believe that God loves them unconditionally. Seek to avoid sinning because it breaks God's heart. Possess a biblical view of the nature and character of God. Confess their sins and embrace Christ as Savior. Accept the Bible as the inerrant word of God. Pray during a typical week. Worship or thank God during a typical week. Believe that Satan is real and influential. Or define success as consistent obedience to God. If you're under 35, you're significantly less likely to hold any of those. The Barna Group, which is a company that does many of these surveys for the church, said this recently, quote, The significantly divergent worldview perspectives and applications, especially how different the millennials are from all of their predecessors, suggests a nation that is at war with itself. It's at war with itself to adopt new values, lifestyles, a new identity. In other words, there is a war for worldview dominance. But as the scriptures remind us, a nation at war with itself cannot persist. And before you sit there and shake your head and go, kids these days, just know who raised them. Just know who raised them. Now, if the church as a whole has been shaken by these numbers, I don't see it. Numbers in our convention have plateaued for quite some time, and we're in the midst of decline, and it appears that as long as we may be personally comfortable, there doesn't seem to be a a real concern. So which way will we go, and how will we react? What should our response be to the spotlight that is on the church right now? Before we get into that, I I briefly want to touch on two reasons that we've gotten where we've gotten. Why are we at such a spotlight moment? Why the need for God to shine that light on us? What has created where we are? So number one, two reasons for the spotlight. Number one, I believe, is a loss of focus. A loss of focus. We've taken our eyes off the purpose that we've been given as followers of Christ. And one surefire symptom of a loss of focus is a loss of reliance on the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We believe here at Ridgecrest that the Bible is inerrant. We believe it is infallible. We believe it is completely and thoroughly the Word of God from front to back. We do not believe we can pick and choose what we want to say God's Word is. And we do not believe the Bible was simply a commentary on a particular era. We believe it is living, we believe it is breathing, and just as relevant today as when the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write the words that God in turn allowed to become Holy Scripture. We believe it all. Why is that important? If if we believe this book simply contains guidelines for good living or consists of a few nuggets of wisdom, then we reduce this book to nothing more than just a compilation of trendy virtues. 
Helps us when we need them, and we can discard them when we don't. If we believe this book is not completely God's Word, but is only partially God's Word, then that means it is up to us to decide what is God's Word in the Bible, and then what is man's Word, and it's up to us to decide. And if it's up to us to decide, then who's God? We are. And that was nowhere near what God meant. If we decide what we're going to follow and what you aren't, and that's how things are set up, then who needs God? Why would we ever think we needed a Savior if we were smart enough to figure out what was God's Word and what was it? <clears throat> a focus on the reliability of God's word is important and it is easy for us to drift from it. Without getting into a lot of specifics, I'll simply say this about, about that. I think you can check this out and find it to be true. The Christian groups who have less impact on the world for the kingdom of God do so in proportion to the extent to which they have rejected the reliability of God's Word. Let me put this in, in another way. The more you give up the reliability of God's Word, the more you're destined to irrelevance in impacting the world for the kingdom. We have to have an anchor. We have to have an anchor. And we have to trust it completely. If we don't, it's really not an anchor for us, is it? We've seen this in many other places, but now we see it in our own denomination. We saw it 30-plus years ago where the fight was a necessary one. Adherence to the authority of all Scripture, not just some of it. And it looks like we may be having this fight again, and it is definitely a fight worth having. We have to have the right focus. So we've lost our focus, number one. It's a reason for the spotlight. Number two, we have lost our practice. We've lost our practice. James uh, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we may say that we believe in the reliability of God's word. We may say that we believe in its infallibility and in its inerrancy, and that is good. But are we practicing even the simple tenets of what is taught? Are we even coming close to living out biblical Christianity? Satan in the Garden of Eden may have gotten Eve and Adam to doubt what God said, but Satan himself didn't doubt. Satan knew God's word was true. That's why he used it to deceive Adam and Eve. He, know, he knew. That's why he hates it so much. It we must know it to be true, but that knowing to be true must 
manifest itself in how we live, and we've lost our practice. If we believe it to be true, it should be reflected in our actions. Our pastor has talked a lot about how during COVID, the pandemic took away a lot of the idols that we built. You know, there was no sports for a long time. There really wasn't any television, movie, entertainment of that type for a long time. And all those things kind of were on pause during the pandemic. But isn't it amazing how quickly those idols come back? It's amazing how quickly they came back or how easily we turn to other idols if, if what we had made an idol went away briefly, we tend to want to find something else our flesh does. We can make idols out of anything. If we make our primary practice about things other than what God has called to be our primary practice, then we have idols. We have idols. It can be anything. It can be anything. I hope, I hope that we're all informed about current events. That's important. I hope you educate yourself enough to vote. For biblical values. I think it's very important. I hope you take an interest in wanting our country to be what God designed it to be. I think that's all important. But at the same time, I hope you haven't made it into something that was never intended to be. I hope it hasn't made you act in a way that's contrary to Scripture. I wish I had time to go through the times Jesus, Paul, James talked about how we should live and how many times the word meek and mild and humble and humility and gentle and love are used in connections with our words and our actions. Is that indicative of us after all? Aren't the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. So would it not be true to say that if these are not the characteristics you display, I display, that we're acting against the Spirit? I don't think anybody wants that to be said about us. But it's, it never hurts to examine our lives and see where we are. Is the world seeing something consistent in what we say we believe, and what our practice is when they hear us and see us because the spotlight's on us. We seem to be in a place today where we are screaming politics and we are whispering the gospel. If we're whispering at all, this is not how it should be. This is not how it should be. And there's the brilliance of the gospel. The brilliance of the gospel is this. Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian oppression and eventually into the promised land to teach a bigger lesson. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, the Jews and others were under great oppression by Rome, 100 times greater than anything we're experiencing now. And many in that time believed Jesus was there to deliver them from the oppression that they were under on earth. And at every turn, every turn, Jesus was teaching the people over and over and over again that they were hoping for something that would never, ever, ever truly satisfy them. He was trying to teach them, I know what you want, I know what you want, but if you get it, you're still not going to be satisfied. 
you're still not going to be satisfied because the only thing that was designed to bring actual peace and ultimate satisfaction was him. Was him. And this is the genius, the genius and the brilliance of the gospel is it doesn't matter what system you live under. The gospel reigns above all. You live under Roman oppression, don't fear. The emperor is not your king. You feel you live in a monarchy, that king is not your deliverer. You live under an autocracy, the czar is not your way maker. You live under socialism, the state is not your promise keeper. You live under communism, it may be godless, but that doesn't mean you don't have a light in the darkness. And if you live under a democratic republic, which is the greatest system that God has allowed to be made to this point in time, the president is not your deliverer. And we, I hope I could have gotten those same amens four years ago. Because it's true. Nonetheless, don't think that something else other than what was promised to give you true peace is going to give it to you. Jesus kept trying to tell us there's something so far above all of that. That's where our eyes should be. That's what should affect the way we live, our practice. Jesus was trying to tell his disciples, all of those that he taught, guys, you are living at such a low level. You're living at such a low level. You keep coming to me and you keep asking me these questions and your, your concerns are all telling me that you're living down here. You're living down here where everybody else is living. Why are people going to be attracted to what you have to say if you're living at the same level that everybody else is? You need to be living on a different plane. You need to be living on a different plane. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3 to set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died. For you have died and your life is in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Is that indicative of our lives or are we consumed with earthly things? Because when you are, you're tossed about in your circumstances just like everybody else is. And when people, when the world starts taking a moment to look at the church and see how the church is living, see how the church is reacting to everything going around, and they see a church tossed about, they're going to go, why bother? Why bother? It, it's, uh, it's why after Jesus told us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, he told us in the Sermon on the Mount in the sixth chapter of Matthew don't be anxious about this or that, what you'll eat or drink. He said, consider the, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. They don't sow, reap, spin, and if God takes care of them, how much more so us? And he adds, O ye of little faith. These are the things that consume the Gentiles. These are the things that consume the Gentiles. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be given to you. It's why James decided to take quill to parchment and write this book because he knew what Jesus 
taught. He knew how those that professed Christ were supposed to live. And when he looked at, how their, how, at their lives and saw that their actions didn't line up with what they said they believed, he wrote a book about it. And I don't have to be a prophet to tell you that if our focus is off and our practice is off, then those numbers I gave you at the beginning will only get worse. Quick quiz. Let's look at uh, Colossians 4 again, and let me just rattle off a few questions to you that are from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Do you continue steadfastly in prayer? Verse 2. Do you pray that God opens a door for the Word? Verse 3. Knowing that if the things continue to go the way they're going, knowing that Pushing for that may wind you up in prison. Do you have a priority for a clarity of the gospel? Is that a priority to you? Do you prioritize, that's uh, verse 4, do you prioritize your time as it relates to non-believers? That's verse 5. Do you speak with grace but have some experience to lean on? Not everyone is the same. Is this true of us? If not, we have a practice problem. So, what led the church to its spotlight moment? A lack of focus and a lack of practice. So, how do we respond? We'll go through these three things in the time that we have left. It's not like we need to reinvent the wheel. I believe our pastor has done an outstanding job of showing us what we need to be doing. Number one, what do we need to be doing? Reach. Reach. Matthew 28 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the first two words there are go therefore. We need to reach. For those of us who are Christians, we're all tasked, all tasked with reaching people with the good news. That while we were still sinners in complete rebellion to Him, Christ died for us. Jesus paid for our sins, my sins and yours, so that we could be restored into a right relationship with Him. Nothing's more important than that statement right there. Christians need to be telling that to reach people for the kingdom of Christ. This is your response to the spotlight. Every empty seat is an opportunity. Who are we called to reach? Everybody, right? Everybody's not like us. One of the things that really caused the gospel to explode was when the Spirit appeared to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and prompted him to take the good news to the Gentiles, who were completely different than the Jewish people of that day. And when he reported back to the new Jewish Christians in Judea what he had done, it says in the 11th chapter of Acts that the Jewish Christians glorified God in this good news. They were completely different. Peter comes back and says, I've taken the gospel to them too. And they were like, I don't know. They, they're a little weird. They glorified God at the news. The gospel is for everybody. It doesn't mean that we compromise the gospel to reach everybody. That's why we began talking about our focus should be on the reliability, the inerrance the infallibility of God's word. So we don't compromise the gospel to reach people. We, we, 
We tell people that we believe the Bible is fully authoritative and we won't bend on it for anything. But it certainly means that we're called to reach those that may not necessarily look like or act like us. If the Christians had only wanted the early church, had only wanted people in the kingdom like them, Christianity would have been a very small, regionalized, trendy belief system that would have popped up and flourished for a small time and then it would have died pretty quickly. But God had a bigger plan. So reach, are we doing that? Number two, build, build. Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples. We're, we're called not only to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, but we're also responsible for growing the Christian into an ever-maturing relationship with him. That's our job as Christians. That's what we should be doing with a spotlight on us. All of us play a role. That's why reach is so important because the more that we reach, the more we have to help us build. The more we have to help us build. And the more equipped we are. And th this is what I believe, and we don't have time to go into it in detail, but First Peter, the second chapter, tells us that uh, we're living stones. And that means that these stones come together when God brings a local expression of the church like, uh, like Ridgecrest here, that everybody that God calls here, they fit together with each other. The people do, like stones to build what God has designed. So it's, it's extremely important that as we reach, we have, we have that, that uh, fit so that we can build and I believe that what God wants to do through Ridgecrest, he brings exactly the people that he wants here for that fit. So we should be extremely rejoicing every time we get a, a new person that comes into our family because that means that God has brought that person specifically to strengthen our body so that we can reach and build. We should... We should be extremely grateful for every person that comes into our family. And we believe that when those people come into our family, and Chuck says this a, a lot when, when he introduces new people to us, that our job is not only to minister to them as a local expression of the body, but now they, we have an expectation on them that they minister to the body as well. That's how we build. That's how we build. God desires each of us to be used in reaching and building. And our final thing this morning, connect. Connect. For if, uh, Esther 4, 14 says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So first we were reached, we came into a relationship with Christ as Lord and Savior. Then we began being built in our faith and began maturing in our relationship with him. And that in turn will help connect us to our purpose. What is the church's response to the spotlight moment we find ourselves in? Reach, build, connect. 
It's in our mission statement. You know, our pastor believes that we may be in a period of time just before Jesus Christ comes back. And we may be. But here's the good news, whether it is tomorrow, a year from now, or 500 years from now, nothing changes about how the church should respond to our spotlight moment. We may be 10,000 years from the last days. If we are, you know what we're supposed to be doing right now? Reach, build, connect. We may be 24 hours from our last day. You know what we're supposed to be doing? Reach, build, connect. Nothing changes. That is our response to the spotlight. And I can tell you something from 25 years as a member of Ridgecrest and four years now on staff. That's our goal. That's our goal. Families, know that we're not perfect, but our goal is just that. If you've got a newborn, our goal is for them to feel the love of Jesus Christ, for them to see the church as a nurturing place where they're loved and valued. You've got a small child. Our teachers want to instill a love for Christ and others and instill respect and a reliance on the Word of God and to begin helping parents build a foundation for their Christian life. If you've got a preteen or a teen, our goal is to guide students to a point of owning their faith, allowing them to be put in situations so that when they go off to college or into the working world and their faith is challenged, that'll hold fast because they were urged towards steadfastness and making God's word bedrock as part of the student ministry. And we believe our young adult Adult and senior adult ministries are equally important because we believe the maturing part of our relationship with Christ never ends. So I'll make a statement and you can amen if you agree. Neither Satan nor his demons can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. One more. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right. So. God could have chosen any way he wanted to take the gospel to the world, but he's chosen normal, everyday people. Whether it was a couple of fishermen, a tent maker, or a tax collector, a newspaper editor, an accountant, a school teacher, a housewife. So the gospel's never defeated. The gospel's never defeated. But if we lose our focus, and if we lose our practice, and if we drift away from making our priority, reaching, building, connecting, then God will tap someone who does make it a priority. Make the main thing the main thing. Reach, build, connect. I lost focus on the bank of that river a long time ago. I knew in my mind what was important, but I allowed other things to take priority. But when that spotlight rolled across and hit that river bank, it got my attention. I stepped up and did what I needed to do. How are you going to respond to the church's spotlight moment? You may be listening about how the church is supposed to respond to the spotlight moment. And you think, well, that's all well and good. But the Holy Spirit may be convicting you right now that you've never actually trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Can I tell you that our spotlight moment is now for you as well? 2,000 years ago, God swung a spotlight all the way across the universe. It's burning as bright as it ever has, 
as bright as 10,000 suns. And with the death and resurrection of Christ, that spotlight hits for every single one of us. Right here, it tells us that grace has saved us. It tells us that salvation is here for us. It tells us our response to that spotlight moment means everything. I watched uh, Indiana Jones a few days ago. I don't know if you've seen the new one yet, but Indiana Jones, if you're familiar with the series of movies, he has a kind of a side, not a sidekick, but he has a friend and a confidant named Basil, who's sort of the professor. Indiana Jones is the adventurer, and Basil is the professor. He's the academic. And there's a situation in the movie without spoiling anything in which Basil almost loses it. He almost loses it. And uh, his, his job is not being an adventurer, but he had to jump into a situation. And, and one of the characters in the movie said, Basil, what were you thinking? And he said, why hide in the hedges when your friend's life is in danger? Well, I think a lot of Christians want to hide in the hedges. But you can't. You can't. You may think that you are hiding in the hedges, but the world is watching. A spotlight is on you. You can't hide in the hedges. Either the world sees you in the hedges because the spotlight is on you, or you're actually getting out and doing what God has called you to do. How are you going to respond to this spotlight moment? Before we pray, the invitation is this. If during the time that I was speaking... Holy Spirit has impressed on you that you have never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Now is the time. Now is the time. Make that very easy. Uh, I don't think that's the right word. We make that available to you if you will respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting. So please, we have people that would be willing to pray for you. If you've been trying to hide in the hedges, even though the spotlight's on you, and you know that you haven't made Reach, Build, Connect a priority, Altars open for you to do business with God as, as you like or in your seat, however. Let's respond to our spotlight moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reliability of it, Lord. I pray for those who do not know you, that your spirit would impress upon them and that they would respond. I pray for those of us that know you that have not responded to our spotlight moment the way that we need to. I pray your spirit would impress upon us as well and that we would do business with you and commit to reaching, to building, to connecting. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for maturing us. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.